Gentlemen, welcome to the Being Wellness Podcast. We're coming to you from Power at the Pass here in El Paso, Texas, and this is episode 31 of our show. My name is Richie Marufo, and I'll be your host. And uh, just right now, quick order of business: uh, we we have a very makeshift setup right now for the show. Uh, you know, 31 episodes in, the show has evolved so much. Uh, we had a, a huge art show at the at the studio this weekend, this past weekend. It was a uh, Most Visionaries show called Elemental. And uh, <clears throat> we also had a bunch of other events. And so right now things are in a ra- disarray. Um, so if it sounds a little weird, it's because the, the room isn't set up the way it usually is. But regardless, we keep going on. And uh, our, our goal is to highlight a lot of the cool artistic, cultural things going on in the city and... and that includes, from time to time, visitors, people we meet and are doing cool things in the region, in the Southwest, in the large United States, and in, in a way, the world. So, today is episode 31. Our guest is Jordan Bubin, who is a poet and teacher from Phoenix. He hops on the microphone as Naughty Mouse to educate as well as entertain. As a graduate of both Princeton and USC Law, he never let his schooling get in the way of his education, and his passion is making knowledge accessible and exciting to everyone. He's currently on a three-month tour through the Western U.S., so he's in the studio right now here at Power at the Pass. How you doing, man? Well, man, thank you for having me on. <sighs> it's great. So that was a long intro, but uh, very cool. Uh, tell us, uh, before we dive in, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Tell us a bit, a bit about your background. I, uh, so I was born in Pittsburgh, and I grew up about an hour to the east of it. I always right. tell people it was uh, about eight miles from where Flight 93 crashed. Mm, okay. That's always one of the things that drives kind of my poetry is pushing people to see things in a new light. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I do on this tour is try and help people to see uh, 9-11 in a new light. Oh, wow. Okay. But so I grew up out there. I was always into uh, like independent hip-hop growing up on the East Coast. Moved out to uh, Phoenix after college. And I just... I. I was that guy who first showed up to open mics trying to meet people, was nervous in the crowd. Mm-hmm. After a while, I got into it out there, and that kind of became the place where uh, we were talking about Merlin Hepworth earlier. Yeah. And uh, Ed Mabry was an old uh, iWhips champion. So those were two of the main characters I learned from out spot. in Phoenix, how to take <clears throat> care of the mic. And what was the name of that that uh, venue or, or mic? It was uh, Black Pearl Poetry. Okay. It was uh, They used to run it out of two spots in Phoenix. They had Fair Trade Cafe downtown on Wednesday nights. And then there was an old converted movie theater they would take over on like Thursday and Friday nights. Real cool spots. Right on. So uh, tell me about the transformation from that like new, new nervous like beginner to like now where you are going on a, on a tour throughout the Southwest sharing your, your poems and storytelling. I, um, I think it started so for a long time I was a middle school teacher. So once I learned to do poetry, slam poetry and different things, mm-hmm. it really helped me. I started a poetry club with my students. And it happened concurrently, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, definitely, definitely. And so that was uh for me it was one of the first times where I could see how much poetry helped other people. It was mm-hmm. one of those things you always hear about. I knew it helped myself, but how much it could help my students, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any idea. So then after I moved out to LA, had some more schooling, came back, became a teacher again. Uh, I just decided I didn't want to be a teacher in a classroom anymore. 
I didn't like following the rules. So I wanted to still be a teacher, still use the same tools, Mm -hmm. but I want to take it on the road and do sort of a road teaching show. Yeah, you realize that uh, education, or or, or rather, like school isn't the only way to get an education. That that was kind of in the bio we read right now. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like I think too, like people point out like, you know, I don't really remember algebra or trigonometry. And so I think we don't realize school isn't meant to teach you those things necessarily. Mm. It's meant to teach you obedience, <laughs> sitting in a chair when you're 12 years old and you want to run around and explore the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the kind of thing, like I hated, I hated telling kids to sit down and tamp down their passions, <laughs> you know, so I just wanted to find another way to, another way to teach people. Right. And, and so I'm curious, uh, you're, you're kind of diving into the poetry club for these students. That was your kind of first inkling of, of realizing that there could be another way. Exactly. Like, like another way, because that was something that was uh, after school, mm-hmm. less limitations, less kind of, um, less structure and protocols that you had to follow. Right. And I like doing different things. Like I coached the soccer team and the basketball team, but that obviously still has rules and it's not a creative expression kind of place, just a good right. spot for kids to get their energy out. Mm-hmm. But with the uh, poetry club, it just let me see, like, here's a way fully how, how powerful it is to have students take their own initiative in what they want to learn and what they want to see and what they want to think about. You can do that some in a classroom, but when it's poetry club, you can just walk in and say, what are we going to do today? Mm-hmm. And let them roll from there. And plus they want to be there. Oh yeah, definitely. Right? Like I, nobody was made to go. Oh yeah. Right? I mean, I always like to think that they like to be in my class because I told them if they wanted to leave, I wasn't going to stop them and I wasn't going to report it. And, you know, we try to make a safe place for kids who might not otherwise have uh, many of those. So what kind of stuff would you would you go over, like, share with the kids? Uh, I would – so they were middle schoolers. So one of the basic things you bring up is poop, just to attract kids. But if you think about, like, what it takes to build a city, <laughs> if you think about what it takes to do urban planning, mm-hmm. uh, if you think about uh, – you can use to talk about disease. Mm-hmm. You can use it to talk about how you have to care for others. So you start with things like that, but I would bring up everything with them from uh, anything they wanted to ask about history, U.S. history, the mm-hmm. Civil War, uh, my own experiences usually I consider fair game. <laughs> All right, yeah, and it sounds like you have a, an interesting background both in in school and life experience. Uh, I've, I've been a fortunate individual. Sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, no. Uh, so you know, I was curious about how that informed because you talked about growing up and and, and you know getting into indie hip hop and mm-hmm. you know also going and studying law and when, earlier we were talking about uh, justice. You know. Yeah. Um. How how is that also informed? Because I know that this is also an aspect of, of your tour. I know we're not just I know we're diving not diving into it yet, but it seems like you know just through through education through mm-hmm. students, you you were interested in like appealing to uh, various aspects of of their own education again mm-hmm. outside the classroom but by learning about the communities and things like environment and and uh, so I'm curious how how all that kind of sprung up and and how that's also become part of your repertoire. I think uh, for me it started so I said I grew up about an hour east of Pittsburgh. And the town I grew up in was basically uh, a vacation resort town mm. for the old Pittsburgh oligarchs, the Carnegies, the Mellons. And so for me growing up, actually, one of my summer jobs was running around mowing lawns on like their third houses. Uh, and so in my town officially, I think it was something like the per capita income mm-hmm. was a quarter million dollars. But, you know, much of the town had trailer parks and something else because it was overbalanced. And so mm-hmm. you had a town with a lot of poverty. We didn't always have heat in the winter at the school. And so seeing such a clear uh, distance between two groups mm-hmm. affected me from a young age. Yeah. Went off to a prestigious school, kind of saw that reflected there and saw mm-hmm. how people weren't always driven to look across whatever barriers there might be. 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, I remember one of the things that most struck me when I moved out to Phoenix. I had maybe 35, 38, 39 kids in a classroom. I only had 28 desks, 28 mm. chairs. I had uh, orange oh. buckets, the kind you get from Home Depot for paint and stuff. Yeah. I had kids sitting on those. I had bookshelves with no books on them, so I pulled the shelves off the bookshelves. Kids would use those on their laps, try and write on. And so just seeing that kind huh. of environment and seeing that uh, – <clears throat> I would see kids still come to school, still want to learn, still want to achieve, and just what we were giving them. It, it not, it's not, it's it's unjust, it's unfair, it's not right, and I wanted to have a larger effect. Mm-hmm. And that's what drove me off to law school. I wanted to be a voice for people who didn't have one. And then going to and working in legal jobs. Mm-hmm. For example, one legal job I had was a guardian ad litem, uh, a lawyer for foster care and homeless kids in New York. Okay. And that kind of thing gave me the... Uh, you know, the law is useful, but it's not the end-all, be-all. You can't look at a 12-year-old who's now homeless and say, stay alive, I'll see you in court in six months. Hmm. And so, you know, kind of seeing the flaws that I saw in our justice system and the flaws in our educational system drove me to want to reach out and build a different kind of educational network, a different kind of community network hmm. that people can use to push for justice in their own communities. Right on. And so <clears throat> I think that's uh, one aspect of aspect of this tour is, is, I think, traveling and getting to learn about a lot of the different communities that, you, that you've passed by. Definitely. Um, what have you learned so far? I am. Um, so I started up in Wyoming and I worked my way down to 25 through Colorado and New Mexico to get down here to El Paso. And mostly it's been inspirational. Like obviously every community already has their own nonprofits, their own activist scenes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the things that I see that I think would really benefit people is being able to network with other communities because sometimes it's so difficult. You're already juggling and organizing Mm -hmm. everything in your own metro area. And so whether it's small presses, we're trying to put things out there, whether it's art collectives, I think that if those people are in touch with one another, Mm -hmm. now if they want to travel, if they want to bounce ideas off of one another, they already have those contacts. They have those ways to reach out. Mm-hmm. And especially, I think, with uh, the way social media works now, it's one thing to connect on there, but if you already have a human connection with people, then the social media can be like a multiplier, something exponential to help mm-hmm. build the ideas that different communities trade. Right, and earlier on, we were, we were kind of talking about uh, you know, how easy it is to be cynical of technology and social media, but definitely, uh, kind of what you're talking about here is kind of enlisting its capabilities for a positive change, you know, kind of putting that positive change again, creating a, a kind of a global network exactly. of change makers. I, um, it's one of those things like when I was in Fort Collins, I was talking to some sociologist grad students, sociology grad students, mm-hmm. and they were looking for ways to collect data because there's always it, money. It takes money to collect data, to carry out research that you mm-hmm. need to push for studies, new proposals for schools. And one of the things like we were talking about earlier is, that you can actually use your smartphone uh-huh. to do basic air and water quality testing. Uh-huh. And I think that like that simple fact as a message to take into high schools, middle schools, community colleges, uh, undergrads, who can all now engage in citizen science uh-huh. and therefore bring about things that 10 years ago might have been prohibitively expensive to prove that your community is suffering from environmental justice issues, uh-huh. that you're being polluted at an absurd rate. Whereas if you can start going into high schools all over the 25, they all have similar problems and just start asking people, you know, do you have asthma? How many of you have asthma? Do you mm-hmm. think that's normal? How many of your families have respiratory problems? Let's start using our smartphones and learn how that works. And even if the students don't necessarily 
uh, find like there's a brilliant example of a school in Brooklyn. They were looking at the problems with the water in their high school, developed a way to fix it. So for them, it ended up giving them a healthier water system for their school, saved New York City millions of dollars, like some untold amount, and it all came out of the students. Hmm. And so I think even if every student doesn't have the capacity to develop some new chemical reaction, it's brilliant just to have students learn what they can do and what potential is out there for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that that uh, we need more, more days, especially, uh, you know, we we're also talking earlier about the narr- kind of narratives being shared. And it's it's kind of always been around, right? Older genera- generation versus newer generation. Yeah. Right? Like now kind of the, the criticism is of like the whole Tide Pod generation and yeah, entitlement. Yeah. Where we were saying at the same time, like with, with – uh, you know, after the shootings, right, seeing these high schoolers stand up for themselves and be very eloquent and, and take leadership in a very impressive way. Definitely. You know, seeing, it's, it's interesting to see the kind of grand narratives being spoken of teenagers and seeing that, that they they're, they can make change. They can enact change. I think that's the most important aspect of what you're talking about here. I think it's one of those things, like, we don't even realize, I think, sometimes, for example, how young some of the French revolutionaries were in the French Revolution or in the American Revolution, mm-hmm. how many of them were in their 20s, but they'd been active from a much younger age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, too, it's, we were talking about March for Our Lives. Yeah. I think it was so moving to see all those things. And you can kind of understand why the older generation might at times be terrified. Hmm. Because you have to realize that the youth are literally the future. Like, we can speak metaphorically <clears throat> about it, but they're the ones who will take over the world. Mm-hmm. It will be there soon. And you have to teach them and train them and help them be prepared for that, rather than pushing them down and saying that you as an adult or I as an adult am not ready for them to take that yeah. mantle. You know, like that doesn't... It's too easy to, to be dismissive towards towards them. And we've all been there as, as youth as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right? You know, definitely. Like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, and, and I think it's <laughs> adults don't know everything and kids don't know everything. Absolutely, right? It's got to be a two-way street. <clears throat> you know, you have to have people being willing to listen and dialogue. And I think that's part of what we're missing mm-hmm. in so many aspects of our lives is we don't dialogue as much anymore. Mm. Well, I like I like this uh, this proposal here. You know, methodologies of learning about data collection and yeah. and how they can use that. Uh, I'd be curious to see what kind of networks can be created out of that. You know? I, you know, I hope we can build some good things, and it, I definitely don't even think that I uh, I have a lock on any of these sorts of um, ideas. Mm-hmm. Especially in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of groups that are already sort of working on this, mm-hmm. and so my goal is to help link those northwestern groups with Mountain West and Southwest groups across the Western United States so mm-hmm. that not just me, but all of those groups can build ideas together. And whatever comes of that, that's on all of us to build together. There you go. Um, <clears throat> let's let's make it happen. So um, that, that's fascinating. And that's something I didn't really expect at all meeting you today because when you, when you uh, messaged me that you were coming through town and, and really you're doing a show mm-hmm. in town, uh, it's part of your tour. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the tour and like what what it's about fine white powder (laughs) yeah definitely uh so i call it the fine white powders tour and in the show i kind of do a mix of uh slam poetry Mm -hmm. and storytelling about the history of fine white powders Mm -hmm. so the granddaddy of fine white powders i always think of is sugar but the little grandkids these days is cocaine and heroin so i start out the show trying to tell people about the legal markets for Mm -hmm. cocaine and the legal markets for heroin and how that leads to some of the biggest banks and biggest companies in the world today and that we don't really realize. I think when mm-hmm. we look at the drug war, we only focus on the illegal drugs mm-hmm. without seeing both sides of the story. And I want people to see kind of that whole story of the drug war 
and then take that back into history and have you look at the Dutch and the French and the Spanish as kind of the original drug lords. They didn't, mm-hmm. There wasn't cocaine yet. There wasn't heroin. Uh, they were just selling sugar, right. cinnamon, and spices. Mm-hmm. But those were those expensive powders, white and brown and other ones, mm-hmm. that uh, made all the money. So on this tour, I wanted to just show people a variety of things they don't normally see about the world, starting with, for example, the good parts of 9-11 that we've forgotten. But most importantly, uh, I want people to think of the drug war not just as something that targets minority populations in the U.S., but that is something that's specifically meant to segregate the drug markets, mm-hmm. not just in America, but all the way down the commodity chain to Bolivia, to Peru, to South Asia. So that's a nutshell of the tour right there. Wow. And this is your, I mean, <clears throat> I think there are a lot of ways to go. I kind of want to dive into into your interest and in, in, in research in, into that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is your first tour yeah, as well, yeah. right? Three-month tour. How, how was the process of, like, reaching out to places like just trying to get in to make it happen going from all the way down to austin and Mm -hmm. and houston and san San antonio yeah yeah wow so how'd that start it uh you know i'm the kind of guy who's had like way too many surgeries on my knee because i used to play football in high school and so this past summer i was lying around after like surgery number three and i kind of promised myself this new year resolution i was going to finally go on tour and not just do my uh poetry and whatnot in phoenix okay and so i always uh I'd always had experience cold calling, doing different service jobs. And so I just reached out to a few people who looked like they were on that path. You always learn from people who've been there. Mm-hmm. And I just said, hey, how do you do what you do? I learned basically you just you make an Excel spreadsheet. You find every city you want to get to. And you contact every single person you can. Try and book yourself in there and learn to sell yourself. Put together a press kit. Make a few okay. sample teasers. And it's been – I'm definitely still learning. I just learned right. to make uh, Instagram stories a little bit more earlier today. <laughs> yeah. And so, but just that whole process is pretty uh, a fun, exciting way to try and build your dream. Mm-hmm. It's great, man. And uh, I think getting to travel to do it is, is a whole other experience. Completely. Oh, definitely. So. Definitely. I, I've always loved, I've never traveled much internationally, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's so much culture, so many different cultures, mm-hmm. so many aspects to the continental United States that just traveling around the U.S. has always been one of my biggest passions. Yeah. And so trying to mix that with meet people for good and to present my own art, it's a dream come true this year. Uh, yeah, like uh, we've had a lot of travelers here on this show already, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of people from the Southwest. Yeah. And uh, I just think that one of the most impressive things is, is really the span and scope of, of what you've put together. Thank you, man. It's Thank really you. impressive. So if you guys uh, are listening right now, maybe be on a lookout. You know, if it's live enough, you might catch them. Tell us about the, the leg of the tour. So after El Paso, All right, yeah, where so are you going? After El Paso, I'm going to actually head out probably pretty late tonight, kind of drive through the night uh, down to Austin. In Austin, I'm going to compete in a slam down there, and I'm presenting an academic talk to uh, students at UT Austin, bounce out to uh, Houston, maybe do the same thing for Rice University. And then uh, before I head up to the West Coast for the next two months, stop in San Antonio and do one more. Okay, cool. Uh, what was your connection there in the, the, in the universities and colleges there? I'm curious. Uh, sort of the same kind of thing, just look up at the different groups. Mm-hmm. But for example, since my show, I like to think of it as uh, history and politics with rhythm and diction, a little mix I like to call pulp nonfiction. I dig that. <laughs> and so, thank you, man. I, uh, you know, I hit up history clubs, geography clubs. I would hit up uh, all the educational clubs on campus, teachers associations, offering them like my perspectives on being a teacher, kind of a public education <clears throat> show. 
And also, I would always reach out to um, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapters, okay. which normally focuses on uh, marijuana reform. But I always reached out to them and said, if you want to fight the drug war, I think you need to know its whole scope. So I'd like to come by and offer mm. and talk to you guys about that a little bit. Wow, man. That's great. Um, and <laughs> and I'm curious about the, the age ranges, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. You're working with... Uh, you're looking at a lot of college students. What about uh, any high schools, middle schools just yet? Definitely. I would love to. So, for example, I actually, before I kicked off the tour, mm-hmm. I sampled it. I went back to some of the old high school students I tutored, popped into their classroom, presented it to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of the show as PG-13 because it has a right. few curse words, but you can always pull them out. Mm-hmm. But the subject matter, if you're going to reference drugs, you got to let people know. They might not want to have younger kids there. True. But more so than that, I find that most people, their general knowledge of history of, say, Latin American history, South Asian history, they didn't get much more of it after middle school. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you might have a slightly longer attention span if you're thinking from a teacher's perspective, but the stuff that you're going to use to teach high schoolers and what you're going to use to teach, I was up in Truth or Consequences two days ago, mm-hmm. and the crowd there was you know, average 50, 60 years old mm-hmm. and still use the same information because people still have the same lack of background knowledge, but still the same hunger for knowledge whether they're 15 or 50. Right. And uh, so what have, how have the um, experiences been? What have been some of the, how has been some of the feedback? Like it, it's, so it's far? been, it's been really nice. Like as a poet, you're always looking for a different kind of response, mm-hmm. but definitely with this show, my goal is to have people see more of the world around them. They might've ignored and have a little more compassion. And so I feel like if at the mm. end of the show, if I'm maybe tearing up and if the audience is tearing up a bit, then that was probably a successful evening. Mm. You know, I, I, uh, the show I've been told is a little intense. And so if anything, I've had people say, Hey, like I need another breather. I need some more Kleenex before we get to the next act of this thing. Hmm. Uh, but generally it's been positive. And what to me being a big crybaby, like, you know, that one, uh, Billy Bob and little football movie, I think, um, it's just nice to know that you can come out and share a message that might seem scary to share that people might not want, Mm -hmm. but that when you get into it, people are actually incredibly grateful I find to receive this information. And, uh, you know, as I bounce around this tour, I've been booking my own things. I don't have an agent. I don't necessarily have maybe the right credentials, but you know, I've been surviving on the, the benevolence of strangers. I'll do a show. People will say, you know what? I want you to do another one tomorrow, crash on my couch. I'll invite some more friends out for the next one. And so that's just been, it's been beautiful more than I could hope for. (laughs) Right on, man. Uh, when you hit me up, I, I just thought, wow, that's that sounds like a great project. I want to hear more about it. And like I said, as soon as I met you, like we just started diving into all sorts of different topics I didn't even expect. And uh, what what can people expect for the show? Like how long and and oh and, yeah yeah like so, pieces, movements, all that stuff. So I break the show into three acts. Mm-hmm. Let everybody have a breather in between each act. So the first act's about cocaine. Second one's about heroin. Third one's about sugar. But really, in that show, we'll talk about everything from Star Wars. To, uh, to border politics, to just straight-up drug conversations. Hmm. And so in there, I'll mix it up to try and, you know, let you breathe a little bit. I'll do some happy poems, do some <laughs> tearjerkers. The stories are sort of things that they'll make you laugh a little bit. They'll make you angry. Um, and the show, all told, runs about an hour and a half. All right. Yeah. Cool. Um, you know, this isn't live. I, I, I tell people, come by later today. But, I mean, by the time people... I listen to this. It's, it will have already happened. Oh, definitely. Hopefully, um, we'll have some videos online, though, maybe. Yeah, definitely check that out. And so that's the thing. If people want to follow your tour, kind of maybe hear some of your pieces but weren't able to make a show, 
how can you do that? What, where can they follow you online to see more of that content? Definitely, definitely. So I have my own website. It's at uh, naughtyamouse.com. And it might sound like naughty, like you're tying up a rope, but it's the opposite of nice because I say things that aren't nice, but they're not mean. So I, uh, I like to use the name Naughty A Mouse. So if you find me on Twitter, it's at Naughty A Mouse. Instagram is Naughty A dot Mouse. And because Facebook didn't like the word naughty, you actually have That's to find weird. me on there a lot of the time. My uh, ID on there is Pulp and Vinegar. Pulp and Vinegar. But if you like, if you want to see any of the stories, I, it, a lot of the poems are illustrated. And part of my uh, teaching goal is I want to come out with a whole series of uh, pulp nonfiction novellas. Hmm. And so, like, it'll tell the story of sugar like it was Narcos. Okay. So you can pick up the Spanish chapter. And really, you'll be learning Spanish history and geography and politics. But it's all going to come across like the Habsburg kings or the Escobars of the 1500s. Wow. So if you want to check out any of that, you know, jump online on any of the social things. And hopefully, they'll start releasing those later this year. And you're, work, and you're working on the animation aspect of it, like cartoons and, and illustrative? So it won't be uh, animated like an ongoing movie. I want to make some teasers. Okay. But it's got illustrations for every chapter. And then I've been working with some people to design uh, river maps. Okay. Because I think one of the key things about learning about the world is you've got to get rid of the national borders. Mm-hmm. They've changed. They're invented. They don't show you where the people are. And they don't show you how we live. Mm-hmm. So I designed all these world maps with just the rivers. Oh, wow. Because you can often find the important cities, the important capitals are always built on a coastline or on a river. And so if you have those, you're able to see a lot of the map, but you get rid of all of the borders that we've put in since. And so I'll have all of that in the in the book so you can traffic. That's really cool. Thank you, man. You learn like uh, geography as smuggling routes and things. So that's kind of my goal with those. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so be on the lookout for that. Definitely follow... Uh... What do you use the most in terms of uh, social media? Like, where where would you recommend? Like, if people wanted to get a hold of you, like, I would say primarily. hit me up on uh, on Facebook at the Pulp and Vinegar, the Naughty A Mouse page, or check out the uh, Instagram. Twitter right. is one I feel like I'm still learning to use and figuring yeah. out all the buttons there. Yeah, same here. It but Twitter I, I noticed is used a lot by in in the academic world and in the journalism world. Exactly. So so if you're looking at things, my goal down the road is to use Twitter much more for writing prompts mm. and actually for educational lesson plans that you can just pick up and run with. Mm-hmm. Here's a few sentences, here's a way to get your class started. And the Instagram is much more something where I put up graffiti and show work and everything else. Mm. So cool. How much does, does hip hop inform like this project? I'm curious. It um <clears throat> It's for me. It's huge. I always felt like as a as a high schooler, I was much more into angry metal and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But I always jumped onto it more if it had a message, if it was teaching something. So when I I learned about Rage Against the Machine or Tool, I would sit down and I'd look up the meaning behind all their lyrics. Okay. And then when I learned about Immortal Technique and a few other artists, I was like, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to emulate. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when I first started doing poetry and I was that nervous guy in Phoenix. I didn't even have meter or rhyme and different things yet, but I still wanted to tell people things. Mm -hmm. And so just seeing that as a medium, and I think especially like one of the differences, I think it's on a a master A CD, (laughs) the difference between uh, hip hop and hip pop. So a lot of what you hear on the radio is going to be hip hop, but Mm -hmm. hip hop came out of communities and it was a way to better self. It was a way to educate and help your community. And so, you know, I, I'd love to be on that, on that page, on that type of hip hop, mm-hmm. where it's about teaching, where it's about education, where it's about organizing, and it's about art and fun and community at the same time. That, that's uh, too perfect. You know, I was just talking about uh, our previous episode. We had a Sibis Alaif Allah from yeah, Connecticut, yeah. and he uh, talks about, you know, Hood Health Network, you know, about yeah. 
health, which is not just uh, your diet and exercise, but also mental health. And he also kind of uses hip hop as the vehicle to, to discuss these things for those reasons that you just mentioned, right? There's, you know, hip hop is a culture, the organizing. So I, I definitely have to link you guys up. Definitely. Um, you know, he, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm he, excited to he talk He traveled to through and he did some some cool workshops here in town. Okay. Uh, he did a, the decolonization of people everywhere tour is what yeah. was going on. I will have to check that out yeah, for sure. So I'll link him up and uh, you'll be the episode right after. So that's going to be really cool. Fantastic. Um, so I know you got a show right now. Like <laughs> the way we do it, like we've done this before too, where we just... Uh, the show we meet people like at a coffee shop. Oh, you do this? Cool, come by to the studio. And and at first, people like the studio. They think it's like a bedroom, yeah, apartment, yeah. you know, like with some mic set up. But you just you know came up and and would you would you experience walking up and seeing Power at the Pass for the first time? This place is legitimate. There are just so many different art installations in this room. I could have sat and looked at any of the pieces, not just in this room, but throughout the whole building. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just two D art. It's three dimensional art. It's portholes. It's things that play with perception. And again, a lot of the art here has a political message. It has a bent to it. It's trying Mm -hmm. to move you as opposed to just, not that there's anything wrong with art that just wants you to question something, Mm -hmm. but I I feel like art should try to move you and inspire you. And I feel like everything Mm -hmm. in here does that. Hmm. It shows like different visions of beauty. There's no one thing in here. Kind of sad to miss the party that I heard was here last (laughs) night just to see how the place is going when it's full of people, but... From from the graffiti to the writing to the visual art, it's just fantastic. Yeah, man, it's it's a it's a pleasure working here, and it really does feed creativity. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, you know, welcome to the spot. You know, I'm glad that we were able to link up and and bring you by. Uh, I know this is gonna have to be like a condensed episode only because so we can go set up for your show and everything. But before we leave, I'd definitely like to uh, have you share a piece or two. I would I would love cool. to do that. All right, cool. So. so should I just jump in and do one? <clears throat> yeah, maybe you want to like give the title or a little context to it. or. Yeah, yeah. So let me, uh, I'll, I'll do two here for you if that's all right. Perfect. So the first one I want to give you uh, will tie into how, as I mentioned, I grew up about an hour east of Pittsburgh near where Flight 93 crashed. And so that's part of why I'm so excited to go to San Antonio next week in particular is to share this next poem because mm-hmm. uh, I call this Never Forget. And I think this is really what you need to remember about 9-11 and it all goes right. like this. Cool. They said to... Remember the Alamo. They said to remember the Maine. Next time they say never forget, ask them, what have you got to gain? Because the first few times they came out with that refrain, they just wanted some land from Spain. And whenever they tell you to remember the ill-fated 11th of September, they never want you to focus on the fact that everyone came together. On that day, 10 assholes hit two towers, and before they fell, they burned for hours. But hundreds of people climb the stairs wearing all of the gear that people must wear when they are one of those that we have hired to run not away but into a fire. And those were just the first of the everyday heroes, thousands that came running down to ground zero, not just firefighters but police and paramedics pulling all-nighters, triple duty like sleep. Forget it. Because out there in the ash and the rubble, there could be one more person hurting in trouble. So they dug and they dug and they dug. As the days turned to weeks and their lungs turned black. Because they knew no matter what, their families were going to want their bodies back. When they tell you never forget, they don't mean any of these facts. They say remember, but don't take the time to remind you of the giant impromptu evac. See, while the towers burnt in Manhattan, no one knew what next would happen. The island was choked with dust and smoke and the subways and the bridges were shut down. People started jumping in the East River to flee what they feared was a killing ground. So the Coast Guard goes for broke, and they hopped up on the radio calling anyone, 
anyone with boats, and from all directions they came. Tens of thousands, and anything that would float like proof you can find all you need in the hearts of ordinary folks. Four places would have been hit that day if the assholes had had their way. The only reason it was three and not more was the people on plane number four, because some of them kept their cell phones on. They heard about the planes that hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, and they were shocked, and they stopped dead. And they were scared, but they said, well, if today is my last day, then I am not going out that way. You doubt the truth? You need more proof that people will sacrifice for the many. Mark Sasseville and Heather Penny, sent to get that fourth plane on jets so fast they didn't even have missiles yet. They flew off at the speed of sound, with one way to bring that plane down, not knowing the people on board had already put it in the Pennsylvania ground, just knowing their success meant their death. They tell you never forget, but they focus on the flames and forget the rest because they want you to miss what came next. That's why they call it the aftermath. They want your eyes to slide right past human compassion on a scale so vast it seems more than our minds can grasp. The chain of hearts and hands and brains from the firefighters to the EMTs to the staff in the ER rooms who went knee-deep through a bloodbath pulling people back from the tombs like this day shall not be your last. They don't want you to remember that. They want you focused on the same handful of frames, the last few seconds of flight of only three of those planes, the towers and the halo of flames and the numbers of Americans slain because they want your anger and your rage and your pain. They want you ready to be trained to drop bombs out of planes or put two in someone's brain. They want you so mad that your mind short circuits and you don't stop to ask, is any of this worth it? Or the most basic question, do heroes take life or protect and nurture it? Thank you. Damn, yeah. And we've done like live audiences the last couple ones. If, again, I didn't have time, I would have had like a live audience here to like listen to that. Cool. No, man, like I said, we, we just hooked up online. I uh, This El Paso date was one I was just able to put together actually on my way up. Uh, through Colorado, mm -hmm. and so like I'm really excited to put it together. I'm ecstatic to be here in the studio with you. You know what? It's just fantastic to be here. <laughs> that was, you know, uh, before you dive into the other one, like uh, how long did it take you to to write that piece after 9/11? That piece, it was one that I started writing probably in like 2010 or so. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's like a 10 minute video on YouTube that mm -hmm. I feel like everybody should see and check out. It's called Boatlift. Okay. It's a movie narrated by Tom Hanks, and it's a story that I didn't hear about till 10 years after 9-11. Hmm. And what happened is, you know, there's that uh, Christopher Nolan movie, Dunkirk, about in World War II when they evacuated like a quarter million troops, takes nine days during World War II to escape from the Nazis. On 9-11, regular people in Long Island hopped in their boats, and they saved a half a million people off Manhattan, twice as many as at Dunkirk in nine hours. I didn't know that. And it's one that oh. like nobody knows. That's the kind of story that I feel like when they tell you never forget, it should be like that. Mm. So it was the kind of thing where mm. like I, I had my hometown experience. I had that. And I think it still took me maybe like a year to write that poem because it was mm -hmm. the kind of thing like how do you show people something where the imagery is so crushingly negative? Mm -hmm. um, but I've been, I've taken that poem to churches. I've taken it to a bunch of places and I've met people who still have shrapnel from the towers in their face or whose families died in the fires. And it's the kind of thing that I feel like, you know, I like to lead with that poem because I've got different ones with different messages. Okay. But that's one that reminds people of the goodness in us all. Like Mr. Rogers said, <laughs> you always got to look for the helpers. And I feel like even on those worst days, that's what, that's what we should be focusing on because that's how we see the humanity that unites us all. It's a great spotlight to give, man, especially uh, in, in the frame of storytelling. I mean, storytelling is, is everything, right? Yeah. Uh, it's our lives. It's what we're, we're, you know, how we create 
our narratives, like yeah. our histories, uh, our hopes and dreams. I think so. I think it's that's how we fr- yeah, like you said, it's how we it's how we frame things. Yeah, and that's how we we bring in new information, and we either bring in new information and see things as threats or as opportunities. Uh-huh. It's also uh, you mentioned this earlier when we were just hanging out, like what you feed. Yeah, yeah. What do yeah. you do? You feed the evil or the good in you? We've seen the, the worst parts of humanity already, and we've also seen the best. Like, what are we feeding into? Yeah, and yeah. So, and and which one of those do we want to feed? Like, we can <clears> fear <throat> one of them, perhaps. <clears throat> don't give that one the food. Don't give that one your mental space. Yeah, that's not if that's not what you want to be. Don't <clears throat> act on that. So, also before before we move on, uh, I just want to comment though that also that kind of had a. Kind of like to me, a, a spiritual connection to uh, Sage Francis's uh, makeshift patriot, that song which he was, yeah. wrote oh right after nine eleven, and that yeah. that song was just like that made me realize the the true nature of like hip hop to like tell a story. Yeah, no, you know, and he pulled no punches on that one. That song, wheelchairs became stairway obstructions. That song has so many lines, and <clears> I, <throat> I listened to that song pretty endlessly mm-hmm. while I was trying to put together my own version of something to remind so, people about that day. So I, I, I found it, you know, to be a spiritual predecessor to what you shared in, in a way, but you also take it and do your own thing with it, you know, mm-hmm. obviously. That's a huge honor. Uh, Sage Francis is a big influence, so that's that's huge, man. Thank you. Yeah, dude, I, I loved it. He's one of my favorites. He When he performed in El Paso, I was there front row. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and, and uh, when he performed Makeshift Patriot, I was right there kind of singing along, and he threw the mic down to me. You put it That's down, ridiculous. and so I got to I got to like sing part of that that chorus in the beginning. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, what it, um, Patriot, the, the flag shop is out of stock. I hang myself a half mass. You know, like I got oh, to yeah. sing that like in the crowd, and I'm like, oh, yeah, made, no, that, made. That's so, fantastic, man. So I just wanted to comment on that, like, oh, I felt that one. No, that's beautiful, man. I'm I'm glad you had the experience, and I'm glad you felt the poem, man. <laughs> I did. Uh, so what else? You, what else do you have for for us right now? Uh, well, if we're gonna do one more, I feel like I should probably give you guys the title track for this show. There you go. Fine white powder, um, and it comes out of a realization I had one day because I was sitting there pouring out my uh, breakfast of champions. <laughs> I had a glass of coffee, I had a Guinness, I had a bowl of Girl Scout cookies. Because it hit me one day, you know, as an adult, you don't necessarily do drugs uh, to have fun. You do them just to get by. And I'm sitting there thinking about putting some sugar in my coffee. And it hits me that uh, sugar is a fine white powder. Let me say that a little louder. Sugar is a fine white powder. Let me say that a little louder. Sugar is a fine white powder. And just like crack and smack, it's all wrapped up in money and power. See, coke comes from leaves and opium from flowers. But the granddaddy of the fine white powders is made from beets and cane. People hear the word drugs, they usually think of gangs. They think of cold-blooded killers with Latin last names who sell PCP, LSD, and Mary Jane, or move meth, ecstasy, and crack cocaine. People hear the word drugs... They think shackles, jails, and chains. They think suffering and pain. They think blood money, backstabbing, innocent slain. But there is no such stigma attached to sugarcane. There ain't no shame affixed to this fix. Even little kids get lit. They sit and take hits getting ripped off of their pixie sticks. And no one sees a problem with this because this is a fix that we all crave. And we are not ashamed, although we know it was built on the backs of black slaves. So I tell y'all that sugar is a fine white powder and I want it to ring in your brains a little bit louder. Because its story is the same as what's shot in the veins or shot up the nose to get straight at the brain. I'm talking blood money, backstabbing, innocent slain. I'm talking shackles, jails, and chains. I'm talking headless and dismembered remains. There are little women and children that bagged up the product and counted out the change. And the killers deranged who run the whole game and who teach kids to kill for material gain. And the craziest thing about it is all of these facts are already in your brain. 
They just got sanitized, like blood stains washed down shower drains, so only the cold and boring facts remain. We all sat in little rows, frustrated but well-trained, and normalized this shit with the phrase triangle trade. Sugar for rum for slaves. Europeans ruled the waves and got money and power off of little grains of white powder. And none of this history is shrouded in mystery. When the fathers sat and authored history, they wrote it as a toast to those who could rip the most from Africa's coast and put them to the yoke on plantations of white powder to fund the guns of white power. The foundation of our nation, the Independence Declaration, was signed by kingpins who ran drug plantations. So fast forward just a few generations to the days when radio stations sing the praises of criminal organizations. But the biggest drug dealers are legally chartered corporations. And on both sides of the law, it's all about location, location, location. It doesn't matter if the battles are fought in courts over end caps instead of blocks, or if the people who pack the gats are called cops. It's still cash crops to define the line between the haves and the have-nots, and I think we're just too high on sugar to call them crimes when they're committed by the criminal minds on top. So I'm on this tour coming to tell people that sugar is a fine white powder, and I'm asking you to spread the word, because knowledge is power. Thank you. Yeah, man. Damn. <laughs> You got that on lockdown, man. Uh, how how have been some of the responses so far on Twitter sharing that one? Dude, I have had am- I've had amazing responses. One of the things that helped me think this could maybe go on a tour mm-hmm. was there was a new mic I found out about in Phoenix. I went in and I did that thing in there, and I'd never performed with a band before. All right. And this mm-hmm. place has uh, like this beautiful band in the background, five six pieces depending on the evening. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I went from doing a poem to doing a song with a chorus. Hmm. Band jumped in. I asked the crowd, like, help me make this louder. And they sang out Sugar is a Fine White Powder. And it floored me. I spent like a month just walking around on tiptoes thinking about the potential of this. And, you know, even like I said, in truth or consequences, you might have like an older crowd. Hmm. People will still get behind that poem pretty much every time. You know what I mean? It's it it doesn't give you much information, but it's what I like to do with the 9-11 poem. A few new facts to color all of these things that you already Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. in a totally different light. Absolutely, man. And I think it speaks to one of the powers in, in poetry to dive deep into an image, you know, and, exactly. and, and uh, you know, for something as simple as sugar, yeah, we take for granted, like the, the history of it, where does it come from? Exactly. You know, and, and uh, it, it's in juxtaposition of things that we look more harshly on, like heroin, cocaine, you know, yeah, yeah. together. So <clears throat> I hope that people will follow your page. I hope Keep so up too. to date check with it out, your stuff. Check it out, guys. Uh, again, check it out. Uh, Naughty Mouse on Facebook and Pulp and Vinegar. Pulp right? and Vinegar, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. And is that in vinegar with an N or A N D? That's a great question. Yeah, it's A N D. Pulp okay. and Vinegar. Pulp and Vinegar. All right, cool. And then uh, yeah, Naughty A Mouse on everything else—the Twitter, the iFace, and every you know the regular web. And before we leave off, uh, I, I know people will ask because I don't think we've covered it yet. So where does Naughty Mouse come from? Oh yeah, definitely. I uh, so. At the time when I thought I might still become a lawyer of some stripe, I didn't think I could have sort of a punk poet alter ego and still become a re- representative lawyer. Hmm. So I wanted to hide behind, uh, you know, a pseudonym, and I thought anonymous, a nonny mouse. But then I was like, nonny doesn't mean anything. It sounds hey, like pepperoni. Hey, hey nonny, nonny. Yeah, Th- yeah. I think there's a Shakespearean kind of. He would use nonny. Yeah, yeah, no, no like it'd be like nothing and nothing. But that's a whole with. other thing. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be nothing, mouse. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, I ended up just playing nonny, 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 and it came out naughty okay. one day, and I decided to stick with that. 
So, you know, I, I, I sometimes I, I'll introduce myself. I'll say, I'm not going to say nice things, but I won't be mean. It'll just be a little bit naughty. Hopefully, y'all don't get cold in your stockings <laughs> for hanging out here. All right. There you go, man. I dig it. Uh, it's a cool evolution, transformation. Thank you so much, uh, Richie. Dude, great. Thanks for being on this show. Honored uh, to be here. Appreciate it. And uh, let's build those global networks. Uh, definitely, definitely, man. Definitely for that. And we start them right here at home. Think globally, act locally. And you're doing that right here, it seems. For sure. Thanks, guys, for tuning into the Be Moms podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, share it with your friends. Definitely. Share it with someone who you think would appreciate it. Uh, give us a rating on iTunes, all that good stuff. We're all around. Uh, Till next time, guys. Thank you, Jordan, again, for being on the show. Thank you, Richie. You all guys right, have cool. a beautiful night. All right, peace. Mm-hmm.